Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. John, we're back. I can hardly believe it. Well, we're back just for a bit. This is a special bonus episode to round out season three. That's great, but uh, I have done the math. I think we are out of Eli Marks' stories from the self-working trick. I'm sorry, the award-winning self-working trick. No, there is one more story that connects to the self-working trick. There's, as we know, another series out there that I've done called the Como Lake Player Series. And the self-working trick takes place in that universe as well, taking place in Eli's universe. Eli's in Minneapolis. Como Lake Players are in St. Paul. The Twin Cities. Yes. And uh, that self-working trick took place, uh, a good chunk of it takes place in the theater. Uh, the Como Lake Players Theater. And it occurred to me it would be fun to do the same story from the other series' point of view. The lead in that is uh, actress, now executive director of the Como Lake Players Theater, uh, Leah Sexton. And to, since she is in the Eli version, let's see yeah. her point of view. And so it is that same mystery told from her point of view with slightly different clues, although everything is still the same. She's just seeing things differently than Eli. I I, I don't know if this has been done before. I don't know if it will ever be done again, but it's the same story from another character's point of view. Terrific. You, you want me to read it? Thanks, but that work has already been done by another terrific narrator, uh, Margaret Mickelson. She has been the narrator from the beginning of uh, the Como Lake Players series because when I started that series and I said, do you want to narrate it? You said, uh, female lead should be a female narrator. And that's uh, I think that's right. I still think that's right. And boy, did you get a terrific narrator. I can't wait to hear her do it. So here you go, folks. This is uh Margaret Mickelson reading an opening nightmare. Enjoy. Albert's Bridge Books presents an opening nightmare. A Como Lake Players Short Mystery. Written by John Gaspard. Read by Margaret Mickelson. Chapter One Leah, you've done it before. All the more reason for me not to have to do it again. I have no other options. On the contrary, you have plenty of options. You just don't like any of them. Please... Devon's tone had been ratcheting up from mild begging, past whining, headed with great speed toward pleading. But this last please was beyond dramatic. To Leah, it sounded like turbo pleading. She shook her head. Having an actress drop out of a play a week before it opens is not the end of the world, she said. You can recast. Devon shook his head. There's not enough time to learn the part. It's the lead. She's got more lines than anyone. Then she walks around with a script in her hand, Leah suggested, at least for the opening weekend, until she gets up to speed. Devin again shook his head. The character is supposed to be blind, he said. I know the theater is all about suspending disbelief, but I think that's a nudge too far. A what? A nudge too far, he repeated. You know, you're asking the audience to pretend the actors are really the characters, that the set is really her apartment, and that everything happening in front of them is happening for the first time. And then to have a blind character spend the length of the play reading from a script in her hand? 
That's a nudge too far. I think the expression is a bridge too far, Leah offered. Not a nudge, a bridge. Devin stared at her, his face a sea of blankness. That doesn't make a bit of sense, he finally said. We're not talking about bridges here. We're talking about little nudges. A little here, a little there. Before you know it, the whole thing just looks silly. I really don't think we should do it with an actress walking around with a script in her hands. The audience won't buy it. How about if the script is in Braille? This remark came from Gloria, who technically wasn't even a part of this conversation. She just happened to be there in Leah's office when Devin had burst in with his upsetting news. The lead actress in the play he was directing had just quit to take a paying job at the Guthrie Theater across town. So not only do I need to find a new actress, but I need to find one who can read Braille? Devin asked. Talk about a nudge too far. Ignore her, Leah said, gesturing toward Gloria. She's not here in an official capacity. Well, I am the president of the board here, Gloria offered. So if, heaven forbid, this becomes a board issue, I will definitely have input in it. I'm sure we can solve this without going to the board. Leah said quickly. She knew from experience that once she involved the board in a situation like this, it wasn't going to get better. It might get bigger, and it certainly would get more complicated, but it wouldn't get better. Look, Devin said, his tone switching from good cop to bad cop. I've seen your resume. You played the part two years ago in Summerstock. You would pick it up easily, and you'd save the show. Leah didn't believe she'd saved the show, but the rest of what he had spouted was true. About a year before becoming the executive director of the Como Lake Players Community Theater in St. Paul, she'd done summer stock for three months in Upper Nyack, New York. One of the plays she'd done had been Wait Until Dark, in which she had, in fact, played the lead, a blind woman. It would be a huge help to me. Devin said, returning to his initial pleading tone. And I really don't want to have to take this to the board, he added, now sounding like a mobster offering up a subtle threat. Leah turned to Gloria. Unofficially, what's the board going to say? Gloria shrugged. Well, you did set a precedent taking over that part in Arsenic and Old Lace. And there's always a possibility Devin won't be able to recast the role between now and opening night, which means canceling the show, disappointing the cast and crew, and losing all that revenue. Gloria had wisely saved the most important word for last, revenue. Leah knew that among all of her tasks as the new executive director of the theater, the most important one was keeping the theater solvent. It hadn't exactly been on the brink when she arrived, but it was close. Major repairs had been ignored, many invoices were outstanding, and attendance had been declining for years. Leah had spent her first six months just straightening out finances, and she was proud there was actual visible advancement in that area. Now would not be the best time to reverse that limited progress. She sighed as she turned to Devin. Fine she said flatly. I'll play the part. 
against my better judgment and with the understanding that I'm never doing this again. Never say never, Gloria suggested with a wry smile. Fantastic! I'd like to officially welcome you aboard as our new leading lady, Devin said as he stood up and headed toward the door. Leah's office was so small, this only required taking one step. Rehearsal is tonight at seven. Do you need a copy of the script? Devin, I run this theater. I really don't think I'm going to have a problem getting a copy of the play that is currently in rehearsal here. But Devin was already out the door. Leah turned and looked at Gloria. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Nah, Gloria said. But I know one thing for sure. What? You have no idea how to find a copy of the script. Leah stared at her friend for a long moment. You're absolutely right. Gloria reached across the desk and picked up Leah's phone. She pressed two buttons. Betsy, she said in the receiver, can you grab a copy of Wait Until Dark for Leah in here? She hung up the phone. Shall we go to lunch? Leah looked at the stack of papers on her desk and the several Excel tabs opened on her computer screen. If we can spend at least some of the time discussing the upcoming fundraising gala, which was why you stopped by in the first place, then yes. She stood and pulled her purse from the top drawer of the nearby filing cabinet. She turned toward her friend as they headed toward the door. Here's what I don't understand. How did Devin get a list of the shows I've been in? Gloria grinned as she followed her friend out. Yeah, that's a mystery that will probably never be solved. It is a weird experience to walk into your first rehearsal and realize that absolutely all the other actors know their lines completely, and I only know my lines a little bit, and that might even be a stretch, Leah said quietly. Alex smiled. I know the feeling. It's only happened to me once before when I was playing Guildenstern and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. I showed up for the read-through. Mind you, not the first rehearsal, the read-through. And my Rosencrantz was already off book. Wow, Leah said. It was quite intimidating, Alex continued. I realized immediately I had to up my game considerably. But in that instance, the other actor was right. There's so much verbal sparring in that show. You really can't begin to do any real work on it unless you already have all the words. And there are a lot of words in that play. At least in this instance, with this show, you have the advantage of having done it recently. You might be surprised how quickly the lines come back to you. They had reached the top of the stairs and were just about to step into the theater's rehearsal room. Leah stopped on the landing and took a deep breath. Alex kindly waited for her. As a fellow actor, he understood what she was walking into. Leah had run into Alex on her way up the stairs and was very pleased to see a familiar face. He had saved her a couple times during the run of Arsenic and Old Lace when she stepped in after one of the actors had fallen down a flight of stairs. And since then, Alex had become a friend and, well, Leah wasn't sure what he had become or what he was becoming, but she decided, at that moment, this was the least of her worries. Leah did her best to put a confident expression on her face as she stepped into the rehearsal room with Alex right behind her. And hooray! Looks like we're all here! 
Devin said from his side of the room. He was sitting behind the director's table at the far end of the rehearsal hall. Between him and Leah were the rest of the cast, as well as a few set pieces, an old couch, a kitchen table, some chairs, and a bookcase. Masking tape on the floor marked doors and stairways. In short, it was a pretty stripped-down approximation of the dimensions and the furniture on the set downstairs, which was currently in its final stages of construction. Everyone, let's welcome our savior, Leah Sexton. Leah has graciously agreed to step into the role of Susan after the surprising, sudden, and selfish departure of She Who Shall Not Be Named. There were murmurs of approval from the cast, nothing bombastic, just general agreement on Devin's statement. To speed things along, why don't you each introduce yourselves? Mercifully, it was a small cast, so this process didn't take long. Alex was the first to speak up. I'm Alex, and I play Rote. I will be your nemesis and tormentor for the next few weeks. Hey, that's my job, Devin piped in. This was met with a polite laugh from the cast. Leah wondered if it might be because the idea landed a little too close to the truth. I'm Lloyd Williams, and I play Mike, your husband's old army pal. Or am I really his pal? Let the audience decide. He punctuated this with a short, maniacal laugh. Leah recognized Lloyd's name from one of the theater's productions earlier in the year. He was a good young actor, and Leah imagined he and Alex often vied for the same parts, so it was nice they were both able to find roles in this show. I'm Omar, and I play Carlino, the first murder victim in the show. Technically, that's not right, Lloyd interjected. Remember the woman hanging in the closet? Oh, that's right. Omar said, sounding a little defeated. That's me, never the dead bride, always the dead bridesmaid. I am the second victim in the show, and to add insult to injury, I die off stage. I don't even get a freaking death scene. This produced a laugh from the cast. Leah recognized Omar from the theater's recent production of Shaw's You Never Can Tell, in which he had played, and beautifully, a comic old waiter. With his stocky frame and shaved head, Omar was built for character parts. The next voice came from the corner of the room. I'm, um, Tom Drake, and I am player husband, he said. Sam. In the play, he added quickly. This actor was also in his 30s, but he appeared to lack the confidence to state his name, or even his character's name, with any real gusto. Leah had run into this type before, and it was something of a cliché in the community theaters. The mousiest actor offstage would occasionally become the most energetic and watchable on stage. Leah hoped that would be the case with Tom Drake, because right now the nondescript man practically disappeared into the woodwork. "'And I'm Georgia,' said the only other woman in the room." Leah recognized her face from headshots in the files, but she wasn't sure if she'd seen her in any plays yet. Which is causing all sorts of confusion for a select few, because I play a character whose name also starts with a G, which some people seem to have trouble remembering and keep calling me the wrong name on stage, she continued. She threw an unforgiving look over at Tom Drake. Her severe expression might have been a glare or might have been a joke. Leah really couldn't tell. Leah was surprised to see that a woman in her early 30s was playing a role which was obviously written to be played by a teenager. However, Georgia was slim and petite and 
had a very young-looking face, so Leah assumed the actress could pull it off. She would certainly find out soon enough. Okay, Leah has a lot of catching up to do, Devin said. We have our work cut out for us tonight because I've been informed by our set designer they will be ready for us on stage perhaps as early as tomorrow night. This news elicited some excitement mixed with trepidation from the small cast. Leah knew the feeling well. The process of moving a production from the rehearsal hall to the stage was often fraught with tension. No matter how well the layout of the stage had been recreated in the rehearsal room, the transition to the actual set was often a bumpy one. This gave Leah a small sense of relief. Once they got down to the stage, the rest of the cast might be just as discombobulated as she was. So tonight, I just want to walk the show, Devin continued. That way, Leah can get a sense of the blocking and the rhythms, sort of get her sea legs, as it were. There were mumbles of agreement from the cast, and then they started the show. Leah wasn't in the first scene, which gave her a few extra minutes to study the layout of the set. It was configured quite differently than the version she'd performed on in Summerstock. And then, sooner than she would have liked, she found herself saying her first line in the show, Hear about the murder? And she was off and running. Chapter 2 The next three hours didn't exactly fly by, but Leah was kept occupied the entire time. She was surprised how quickly the words came back to her. This allowed her to focus on where to stand and when to move. Devin's blocking was, of course, different from her earlier production. Consequently, Leah had to fight muscle memory when the new blocking told her to turn left, while her old blocking told the rest of her body to turn right. It's like performing the show in a funhouse mirror, Leah said. You did great, Alex replied. The rehearsal had ended on time, and, as was often the custom at the Como Lake Players Theater, many of the actors rounded out the evening at Jimmy's, the bar directly across the street. Jimmy's was a neighborhood establishment, which dexterously balanced two distinct customer bases, the working-class folks from the area and the theater types from across the street. Both groups tolerated each other with little friction and even less interest. Alex refilled Leah's glass from the communal pitcher of beer. The cast had found a table in the back of the crowded bar. You're actually lucky to be here this late in the process, he said. Devin has been so indecisive on every element of the show, including the blocking, that it was like rehearsing a new show every night. The man simply cannot make up his mind, Lloyd Williams added. It's borderline unprofessional. It's annoying as hell is what it is, Georgia snapped. She had just returned from the bar with her drink of choice, a vodka tonic. Leah had been surprised during the rehearsal just how quickly and accurately Georgia had been able to slip into the role of the teenager. Leah wasn't sure if that signaled a natural immaturity on the actress's part or just tremendous skill. Either way, even right up close, Georgia had amazingly and effectively become a rather annoying teenage girl. I have never, never, never been in a show where a director changed every element as often as Devin has, Georgia continued. She sat heavily in the seat next to Leah. I'm surprised he ever got beyond the casting stage. You know, it's sort of fitting the lead actress was changed at the last minute as well, Omar suggested. He looked over at Leah from his place across the table as he grabbed a handful of pretzels from a bowl. Terrific job, by the way. 
It's a tough thing to walk into, and you handled it great. He held up his glass and a toast. Thank you, Leah said. I was surprised how quickly it all came back. I did a production of A Christmas Carol, Lloyd Williams said. We used to do it every year. One year our Scrooge couldn't make it for the final weekend. So they called the guy who'd done the role three years before. He hadn't even read the play in those three years, but he walked in, put on the top hat and the cape, and he was a word-perfect Scrooge. It's a gift, that's for sure, Alex said. Either you got it or you don't. I can barely remember the lines I have for this play, let alone one from years ago, Tom Drake said quietly. Leah could hardly hear him over the loud music. Barely is right, Georgia snorted. This is Tom's first play at this theater, Omar explained. He is the most new of all newbies. It's my first play anywhere, Tom corrected. You've never done a play before and you got cast in a significant role in this one? Leah said, then quickly added, I mean, I don't mean to sound so incredulous. I'm sure you're very good. Congratulations. That's what community theater is all about. Tell me about it, Lloyd grumbled. I was essentially a spear carrier for the first half dozen shows I was in. I don't know why Devin even cast me, Tom said with a shrug. He said something about me having the right look or something. Leah couldn't help but smile. Tom's look, if he had one, was what an old acting teacher of hers had called Sears Catalog, page 47. Tom wasn't exactly bland, but he also hadn't been blessed with leading man looks, like Alex and Lloyd. Georgia appeared to want to add something to the conversation, but she was interrupted by the buzzing of her phone. She glanced down and scowled at the small screen. A summons from the old ball and chain, she said with a sigh as she stood up. She pressed the button on the phone as she walked away from the table. Leah could just hear the beginning of the conversation. What do you want, anyway? I'm practically on my way home. Before George's voice was swallowed up by the music and the general hubbub of the crowded bar. George's departure created a long moment of awkward silence at the table. Leah glanced around at the four actors in front of her. Two leading men, one character actor, and a newbie who based on his performance during rehearsal, might not be long for the theater. Although, who knows, Leah thought. It's his first play. He's nervous. He doesn't know anyone in the cast. I should cut him some slack. So how are things coming for the big fundraiser? Omar asked, breaking the silence. Are all the segments cast? I know that's a cliche question coming from an actor, but I'm just curious. The fundraising gala, Leah had quickly learned, was popular with the acting community due to the large number of actors required for its production. Over the course of one gala evening, the audience would be treated to short scenes from all nine plays for the coming season. While some directors liked to double and triple cast the segments, the director for this year's gala had opted to cast each role with a different actor. Yes, I think the director for the preview segments has cast all the parts, Leah said quickly. I believe Betsy sent out emails to everyone who's been cast. I got one, Alex said. I got one, Lloyd Williams echoed. I didn't get one, Omar said. He turned to Tom Drake. Did you get cast for the gala preview? Tom looked like a scared rabbit. He shook his head quickly. No, no, he stammered. I didn't get cast. Well, that's nice to hear, 
Omar said with a sigh. 50% of the actors at this table did not get cast. I guess I don't feel quite so bad. Actually, Tom said, struggling to get his voice heard above the din of the bar, I didn't audition for the gala. I didn't know about it. Omar shook his head. Great. Just great. Alex turned back to Leah. Other than that, how is it going? I know this is the first time you've had to run one of these things, and it can turn into a bit of a nightmare. Leah laughed. No, so far so good, she said. I met with Gloria today to go over all the silent auction details, and I'm just waiting to hear back from the guy who's going to be our MC. Other than that, I think we're ready to go. Before that, you've got one more big hurdle, though, Lloyd Williams said with a grin. What's that? Your opening night, he said. Leah shuddered at the words. More like my opening nightmare, she said. This produced a knowing laugh from the other four actors around the table. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think the next round is on me, Leah said. Beer all around? Chapter 3 Despite the director's annoying and persistent, indecisive approach, Leah was surprised at how smoothly Tech Week and the first two previews had gone. There had been, of course, a few hiccups. Some lighting cues were still in flux, and Lloyd Williams was not as off-book as his attitude might have suggested, which had left Leah stranded on two occasions during the preview performances. However, the real revelation was Tom Drake, who played the role of her husband. He was terrific, funny and warm and touching in the role, even getting a couple more laughs than the script might have indicated. He'd had a bout of nerves before the first preview in front of an audience, which required a quick pre-show dash to the men's room. But once on stage, he'd surprised Leah by not only knowing all of his lines, and in the right order, but demonstrating a real vibrancy which hadn't been evident during rehearsals. But all that was behind her. It was finally opening night. Leah stood in the wings, script in hand, doing a quick refresh on her lines for the first scene. She could hear the rumble of a full house out in the auditorium. Alex, in full costume and makeup, sidled up next to her. He absently rolled a 50-cent coin across the backs of his fingers, a character trait he'd devised for the cunning and frightened Mr. Rote. Ready to break a leg? He asked in a practiced stage whisper. Ready as I'll ever be, Leah said as she closed the worn script and set it down. It would help if real life didn't keep interfering. How do you mean? Oh, I just got a text from the guy who is going to emcee the gala for us, pro bono. You mean for free? Yes, for free. But pro bono has a classier sound to it. And he dropped out? Yes, but that's not the wording he used. He said something like, I've been forced to accept another opportunity, Leah whispered with a wry chuckle, which I'm guessing means a paying gig. This was the magician? Yes, someone on the board thought he'd be perfect for our theme this year, the magic of theater. Yikes, really? Leah nodded. I know. I know. There are some hills you choose to die on, and that theme was not one of them. Death by committee. Exactly. Well, if you're looking for a replacement, I know a guy. Leah couldn't help but smile. Of course you know a guy. You know everyone. That's probably an overstatement, but I do know a pretty good magician. Who do you think taught me this? Alex held up his hand, once again demonstrating his newly acquired talent, skillfully rolling a 50-cent coin across the back of his knuckles. I could ask him. If you don't mind, that would be fantastic, Leah said. 
One less thing for me to deal with. No problem, Alex said. He glanced over at the assistant stage manager, who was waving at him frantically from the other side of the backstage area. Anyway, have a great show. You too. This was followed by an awkward moment between the two of them, in which they didn't know if they should hug, give each other a quick kiss, or a formal handshake. That, in a nutshell, Leah thought, was the best representation of where things currently stood with Alex, a weird sort of limbo. Before she could say or do anything else, Alex was on the move, headed toward the other side of the backstage area from which he would make his entrance in a matter of moments. Leah took a deep breath. There's nothing I can do now, she thought, except do the show. Just then, the house lights dimmed and it was time to perform Wait Until Dark. When Leah looked back at the evening's performance, she realized it had been, at least up until the murder, a nearly perfect show. It wasn't just a question of everyone hitting their cues, saying their lines, and finding their light. While the two preview performances had been good, the opening night audience witnessed a much stronger, more vibrant show. Everything just clicked. Alex was bone-chillingly scary, as wrote. Lloyd Williams was both smarmy and charming and also managed to pick up all of his cues and respond with the correct, or mostly correct, lines. Georgia was the quintessential annoying teenager. Omar, in his brief scenes, once again demonstrated his chops as a character actor. Even Tom Drake, playing her husband, took everything up a notch from what he had done in the preview shows. The moment Leah was most looking forward to, as was everyone in the cast, was the big jump scare toward the end of the play. After a prolonged scene in pitch darkness, it appears that Susan has killed the dreaded Mr. Rote. That scene was played in complete darkness, adding even more suspense and terror to the moment. And then a bit of light appears. The refrigerator door slowly swings open. Leah, as the blind Susan, of course doesn't witness this. But from the audience's perspective, it doesn't matter. The bad guy is dead and the heroine is headed toward safety. And then, blam! Out of nowhere, Rote leaps out of the darkness, clearly not as dead as everyone thought. As it had done with the two preview audiences, this moment elicited a sudden scream from the crowd. It was the ultimate jump scare. Leah could hear the audience shriek, of course, but at that moment she was in the midst of a well-staged and choreographed battle to the death with Rote. As a result, it took her several seconds of tussling with Alex to realize something was wrong in the audience. The initial scream of shock at the appearance of Rote had faded, yet someone in the crowd persisted in their screaming. This was not a yelp of surprise, but a shriek of real terror. Leah realized that, like the old expression, someone in the audience was screaming bloody murder. A loud murmur rose within the crowd, and then shouts of, Turn on the lights! Get a doctor! Turn on the lights! Kanisha, the level-headed stage manager running the show from up in the booth, wasted no time in following that directive. The house lights popped on, and from her position on stage, Leah could just glimpse what all the fervor was about. In the back row, a few seats from the aisle, one of the audience members lay slumped forward. A large knife, not unlike the one Leah was currently struggling to hold onto in her fight with Rote, protruded sharply from his back. Two things were immediately apparent to Leah. That audience member was clearly dead. 
and this evening's show was just as clearly over. Chapter 4 Although everyone had been told to turn off their phones before the show began, the audience seemed to have no problem quickly pulling them out, turning them on, and calling 911. From where she stood on stage, it looked to Leah like half the audience had their phones out and were dialing at the same time. Then what seemed like just moments later, EMTs burst into the theater, followed nearly immediately by the police. The performance had shifted seamlessly into a crime scene. The police secured all the exterior doors, hustling the opening night audience into the theater's front and back lobbies. For just the briefest of moments, Leah regretted having shut down concessions after intermission. As her friend Gloria would have remarked, she clearly left money on the table with that move. Still in makeup and costume, Leah moved through the lobby, looking for the familiar face she was sure would be there. And he was. Homicide Detective Dietz was conferring with two uniformed officers. Perhaps twice her age, Dietz was the definition of craggy. He always looked tired, and tonight was no exception. Deep in conversation with him was Betsy, the theater's longtime administrative assistant. Although Betsy was not as old as the theater, she came in a close second. It's a ticketed event. Betsy was explaining to the detective as Leah got close enough to hear, We have a new ticketing system, so we can give you the phone numbers, email addresses, and credit card information for all the ticket buyers. And we know where each party was seated, so we can get you all that data. This new system, holy cow, we've got tons of data. Detective Dietz glanced up at Leah and nodded a greeting. Plus, all the exterior doors are locked during performances, Leah added, picking up where Betsy had left off. So while it's possible someone might have left after the, um, crime, it's unlikely anyone other than audience members were in the building when it happened. And the cast and crew, of course, Betsy said. I've pulled the CCTV footage from the back and front door. Those cameras are motion sensitive. I did a quick check. Nothing was recorded after the smokers came back into the building at the end of intermission. We'll need copies of that, the detective said. Ready whenever you need it the old woman replied quickly. Betsy headed back toward the box office as the detective turned to one of the uniformed officers. There's no point keeping all these people here, he said. Start letting people go. Just make sure you get IDs on everyone before they leave. The two officers left to begin their task. Dietz turned to Leah, giving her a quick glance up and down. Interesting choice of wardrobe. My wife used to wear those. What are they, culottes? Capri pants. Leah explained. I'm in the play. Do you know what happened? Best as we can tell, someone stabbed one of your patrons in the back during a blackout in the show. Was the blackout planned? It's in the script. Dietz nodded. The wife has tickets for next weekend. I doubt you'll see exactly the same show as tonight. I certainly hope not. Leah realized that while the performance was over, the night was far from done. Well, I obviously picked the wrong opening to attend last night, Gloria said with a laugh and a sad shake of her head. Sounds like you had one for the record books. I don't know about that, but it was certainly one for the police blotter, Leah agreed. She reached for the bread basket, which she'd noticed still held one final very fluffy and, surprisingly, warm roll. 
The two friends were halfway through their lunch in the posh restaurant found deep within the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, where Gloria worked. Leah always marveled at the perks and extras one received by working at the August establishment. In contrast, the Como Lake Players Theater only sported two vending machines in the break room. One dispersed off-brand sodas, and the other offered a wide selection of stale candy and chips. Leah made yet another mental note to look into upgrading those paltry selections. What really irks me was last night was the first Como Lake Players opening I've missed in years, Gloria continued. It figures. The first time I'm not there, and finally something interesting happens on that stage. So I'm guessing your opening night here was somewhat less eventful? No deaths? Leah asked as she finally corralled and stabbed the remaining cherry tomato in her salad. Theater in general died a little last night here, but that was the only real casualty. A new play via a spanking new playwright, and one who actually deserves a bit of a spanking, if you ask me. Someone needs to explain to her that dense and obscure are not two concepts you're looking for in a play. There is one upside for you concerning our less-than-stellar opening here, though. What's that? The town's few remaining theater critics were with us, not with you. So what did the police know? Who was it? Who did it? Why? There are still plenty of unanswered questions, but they did figure out the victim's identity last night. It was a guy named Jeremy McCormick. Gloria looked up from her tomato basil soup. Jeremy McCormick? The actor? Leah nodded. Yes, apparently he's been in several shows at the Como Lake Players. Betsy recognized the name immediately, and both Alex and Lloyd Williams knew him when I mentioned his name at the bar last night. I just bet they knew him, Gloria said. The three of them were always vying for the same roles. If the police are looking for a motive, there's one right there. To be honest, I'm not sure there's any role at the Como Lake Players that's worth killing for, Leah said. Certainly none worth dying for. And even if they did have a motive, they also have airtight alibis. Both Alex and Lloyd were lying dead on stage near me when the murder occurred. Although Alex wasn't quite as dead as the audience thought, Gloria said. You're saying the murder happened during the blackout, right before the jump scare, right? Yes, in the dark. That's either precise planning or damn good luck. Do the police have any actual suspects besides all Twin Cities community theater male actors in their mid-thirties? Leah shook her head. I didn't get that impression from Detective Dietz last night, although, as he said, the investigation is ongoing. Is there anyone else in the cast we should suspect? Did any of them have means, motive, and opportunity? Leah considered this for a long moment. Well, I can't speak to motive, because I just don't know the cast all that well. As for means, well, the knife that was used to kill Jeremy McCormick was right there in the back lobby all night long. It's the knife we were going to use to cut the opening night cake. Just sitting there for anyone to grab at any point in the evening, Gloria said. Yes, I suppose so, Leah agreed. Someone could have picked it up during intermission and then used it to stab Jeremy McCormick during the blackout. But if it was an audience member, they'd have to find a way to get out of their seat, move to the back row, and then count down the right number of seats, in pitch darkness, no less. 
It could be an audience member who just hid in one of the bathrooms during intermission and then snuck into the theater during the blackout. I suppose so, Leah said. But as for the actors, although they had access to the knife, I don't think they had opportunity. Lloyd and Alex were with me on stage when it happened. I could see Georgia and Tom Drake in the wings waiting for their cue to come on. Of course, Omar was down in the green room waiting for the curtain call. But in order to come up out of the green room and get to the lobby, he would have had to pass both Georgia and Tom Drake backstage. And both of them say that didn't happen. Gloria laughed. So your little production has been blessed with the magical aura, which is Georgia? Lucky you. Who is her sexual conquest for this show? Conquest? I'm not one to spread rumors, Gloria began. Before Leah could object, Gloria held up a hand to stop her. All right, I'll own it. I am definitely one to spread rumors, but sometimes rumors are based in fact. I've seen Georgia in many, many shows, and the one thing you can count on is that she's going to hook up with somebody in the cast. You can set your watch to it. Leah considered this new piece of rumored information. I don't know, she finally said. I got the distinct impression she's married. Gloria nearly did a spit take with the contents of her second glass of wine. I don't think that's an issue with that young woman, Gloria said as she used her napkin to blot a bit of wine off her cheeks and then dabbed at the tablecloth. I think her wedding vows weren't vows so much as they were suggestions. As far as I can tell, she doesn't seem to have anything going with anyone in the cast, Leah said, and I usually have a pretty good radar for that sort of thing. Well, perhaps, just perhaps, our little Georgia is starting to mature, Gloria said. Let's turn to a brighter topic. Has anyone else bailed from the gala presentation besides our MC? Not today, but I haven't checked my email for an hour. You folks are getting quite the reputation over there, Gloria continued. First, your lead actress leaves a major role there to essentially do a walk-on part over here, and then your MC bails in favor of a paying gig. I know, Leah said with a laugh. I hope these things don't come in threes. Well, in truth, you may have already hit your third, Gloria suggested. Leah looked over at her questioningly. How do you mean? Gloria shrugged. You did sort of permanently lose an audience member last night, didn't you? Leah really couldn't argue with that. Chapter 5 Devin had called for a notes session to take place before the Saturday evening performance, which all the actors, including Leah, dutifully attended. However, with the director's penchant for indecisiveness and constant change, she was concerned about what these notes might entail. On the other hand, given the chaotic nature of the previous evening, bringing everyone together for a quick pep talk actually didn't strike her as such a bad idea. All right, Devin said as he paged through his small notebook. Great show last night, really tight, just a few minor tweaks, nothing major. The cast sat quietly on stage as Devin continued to flip through his notes. They had all taken different positions around the set. Omar was perched on the edge of the stage. Tom was sitting on the short flight of steps which led to the apartment's front door. Georgia was on the couch, with Lloyd Williams sitting at the other end, balancing on the arm of the sofa. 
Alex had settled into one of the chairs around the small kitchen table, while Leah had opted to stand. She leaned against the refrigerator. Lloyd, I talked to the set designer, Devin began, about how squeaky those blinds are when you open and close them to signal rote. It sounds like I'm running a threshing machine or something, Lloyd said. Not that I know what a threshing machine sounds like. Yes, they are loud, Leah agreed. I do wonder why I don't comment on it at that point in the show. I'm not sure how far the sound carries out into the house, but they are distractingly squeaky here on stage. Oh, honey, I could hear them all the way in the back row, Devin said. Anyway, I've talked to the set designer, and she says this issue falls under props, something about people touching it and it moving. So I have a call into our prop master, although that title might be overstating it. Prop minion is more like it. Anyway, my hope is that he can get them greased or oiled or whatever the hell you have to do to make them quiet. He glanced back at his notes. Okay, next. Tom, I need you to be further downstage before your first exit. You're getting lost up there in the kitchen. Sure thing, Tom said. He had his script open in a binder in front of him, and he began furiously taking notes. Further downstage, he mumbled, and then he looked up. Which way is downstage again? Oh, for God's sake, Georgia barked from her position on the couch. Can you at least attempt to learn theater terminology? I mean, how tough is it? There's a lot of new and different words to assimilate, Tom said quietly. I'm trying to get them all straight. Well, try harder, Georgia snapped. It's okay, Tom, Alex said quietly. I'll go over them with you again before tonight's show. Thanks, Tom murmured. He kept his head down, either focused on his notes or going out of his way to avoid eye contact with Georgia. Devin quickly flipped through the rest of his notes and then snapped his notebook shut. Other than those few notes, that was a pretty strong opening, he said. Just do everything you did last night, and I think we'll be fine. Except, he added, just as the actors began to disperse from the stage, except let's lose that stabbing in the back row at the end of Act Two. I don't know about you, but I think it's pulling focus. He was still laughing as he headed up the aisle and out of the auditorium. We all know the expression, a bad dress rehearsal means a good opening night, Alex asked. But is there also another expression, someone dies on opening night and your second night is brilliant? If that expression doesn't exist, it should, Lloyd Williams agreed. The rest of the small cast around the table all nodded in agreement. They had retired to Jimmy's bar across the street after what was generally agreed to have been the best performance of Wait Until Dark so far. Leah wasn't quite sure why that was, because often the second night of the show was a bit of a letdown but not in this case. It's sort of ironic that this may be the best show Jeremy McCormick was ever involved in, Omar said with a grin. Too soon? Too soon, Alex said. I don't know, Lloyd said. Dark as it may be, from what I'm hearing, the whole thing has given the show quite a buzz. That's true, Leah said. According to Betsy, ticket sales were off the hook this afternoon. We're sold out tomorrow as well as next weekend. Well, for that, all I can say is thanks, Jeremy, Omar said as he lifted his glass and a toast, and added thanks for giving me a new role. New role? Lloyd asked, his actor's curiosity piqued by this statement. Yep, 
The guy directing the scenes for the gala show called this afternoon to see if I'd be able to take over Jeremy's part in that show. Welcome aboard, Alex said, holding up his own glass of beer. The others at the table mirrored that action, but without much enthusiasm. Hearing another actor had been cast in something was always something of a letdown. Leah thought back to her conversation with Gloria at lunch that afternoon. Was there any role worth killing for? Certainly not one at the gala show. Each part amounted to just a few lines and a short scene, one of nine, spread out over the course of an evening. Was it worth killing for? It certainly wasn't worth dying for. You said one drink, come on, let's go, said a gruff voice behind Leah. She turned to see a burly man in his early 40s approaching Georgia. In case you hadn't noticed, I'm still drinking my one drink, Georgia said, indicating the half-full vodka tonic in front of her. We'll finish it up and let's go. I want to get home. You didn't have to come tonight, Georgia said. You fulfilled your marital obligation by coming last night. Yeah, well, somebody got murdered last night, the man said. Leah assumed he was Georgia's husband. Someone got murdered and it could have been you. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm keeping an eye on this show. He was murdered in the audience. I'm on stage. The only thing that could possibly hurt me in this show are the reviews. Or maybe this klutz will knock me off the stage, she continued, gesturing toward Tom, thinking he's headed upstage when he's supposed to be downstage. We had an agreement, her husband snapped. Fine, fine, Georgia said. She finished the drink quickly and got up. See you at the matinee tomorrow, unless someone else gets killed between now and then. That never occurred to me, Lloyd Williams said once the squabbling couple had disappeared. What's that? Leah asked. I just assumed the murder of Jeremy McCormick was a one-time thing, you know? One and done. But what if it's not? What if Jeremy wasn't the only victim, just the first one? This idea appeared to unsettle the others at the table just as much as it unnerved Leah. And then she looked over at Alex. It was hard to be sure in the bar's dim lighting, but Alex looked like he had just gone pale. Chapter 6 As an actor in the show, Leah was required to show up at least one hour before curtain. Upon arrival, she would dutifully add her initials to the actor's sign-in sheet to alert the stage manager that she was on the premises. However, as the executive director of the theater, she often had other duties before a show, such as helping Betsy finalize all the ticket sales for that afternoon's matinee. This once tedious process had been enormously streamlined recently with the installation of a new computerized ticketing system. Although Leah had spearheaded the process of acquiring the new program, Betsy was the one who'd had the most hands-on experience with it so far. By the time you print the ticket, everything's already been done for you, she explained as she demonstrated the process to Leah. When they come up to the window, they tell you their name and you punch it in. Then verify the name and the show date. If they want to see where they're seated, you can pull that up and then spin the screen around for them. Betsy punched some keys on the computer and a schematic of all the theater's seats appeared on the screen. Two of the seats were glowing. This is where this couple is sitting for this afternoon's matinee. And you can click on any seat like this and all the information on that ticket buyer pops up. She clicked on one of the other seats, and a split second later, a box appeared on screen with the ticket buyer's name, contact information, and credit card number. So you can click on any seat, and it will tell you who's sitting there? Sure thing. 
even for past shows? As long as we don't manually delete it, it will be there forever. Leah glanced at her watch. She still had plenty of time before she needed to get ready for the show. Can I look at Friday night, opening night? Betsy punched a few keys. Done and done. She stepped away from the computer to get the cash drawer from the safe. Leah took her place, sliding the computer mouse around until the cursor on screen hovered over the back row of seats. She was curious about Devin's statement that he could hear the blinds being opened on stage all the way from the back row. Had he been seated in the back row? She knew if the murderer was actually someone from the audience, a person seated on an aisle would have had the easiest time getting out of their seat, committing the murder, and getting back without arousing suspicion. And like the actors on stage, the show's director would know exactly how long the blackout was and how much time he'd have to kill Jeremy McCormick. But did Devin seem like a killer? Not really, although he did have a certain unhinged quality to him. But if that indicated he was a murderer, then so were most of the people she'd ever met working in the theater. But did he have some beef with Jeremy McCormick, which was sufficient enough to require cold-blooded murder? She had no idea. Leah clicked on the seats in the back row, starting at the stage right aisle and moving left. Devin wasn't on that aisle seat, but his name did pop up three seats in. He was about six seats away from where Jeremy McCormick had been seated, so it seemed unlikely that Devin was the killer. There was simply no way he could have gotten out of his seat to do the deed without alerting the people around him. Leah looked more closely at the information box that had popped up when she clicked on Devin's seat. Betsy, what's it mean when there's a red C next to the audience member's name? Betsy was just sliding the cash drawer into its slot under the box office window. That means they had a comp, she explained. That would make sense, Leah thought. As the show's director, Devin would have been given a certain number of comps for the run of the show, just like the actors, the designers, and the crew. Her curiosity piqued, Leah quickly clicked on each of the seats in the back row. She was surprised that, in addition to Devin, several people in the back row had been comped into that night's performance. When someone gets a seat with a comp, do we have any way of knowing who gave them that comp? Betsy thought about this for a long moment and then shook her head. Not currently, but we could add it to our list of features we'd like to see added to the program. The sales guy mentioned that a ton when he was demonstrating the system. And the person giving the comp, can they pick which seat it's for? This question took several more seconds of thought on Betsy's part. They sure could, if they arranged the reservation. But normally, the comp ticket holder just shows up at the window and we give them whatever seat pops up. Leah studied the information on screen again. She wasn't sure if this changed anything, but it would certainly be worth passing this new information along to Detective Dietz. There was a red C next to Jeremy McCormick's name on the screen. Someone. The cast, the crew, the designers, or the director— had given the murder victim a free ticket to the opening night performance of Wait Until Dark. Chapter 7 You must be the magician, Leah said as she extended her hand. Guilty as charged. Thanks for waiting. Sorry for the delay. Things are a bit nutty around here. That's usually par for the course during a tech rehearsal, he said. I'm Eli Marks. Leah guessed he was in his mid-thirties. He had a handsome guy-next-door look that was immediately appealing. She already liked him better than their first MC, who'd had a slimy, unctuous quality that she'd found instantly off-putting. 
I'm Leah Sexton, the executive director of the theater. And an actress as well, if I'm not mistaken, he said. You're in the Kurt show, right? Guilty as charged. So you've seen it? Opening night. Leah winced. That show wasn't really indicative of our typical fare. Well, it certainly was a memorable first visit to your theater. Alex was kind enough to give us comps in exchange for a little magic training. Oh, you're the one who taught him to roll a coin across his knuckles, Leah said with a laugh. He does it incessantly now. That's pretty typical of a beginning magic student. Don't worry, it's not a permanent condition for most. I don't know if Alex fully explained the structure of our gala show, Leah said as she guided him through the theater's lobby. It's a preview of our next season, so the audience gets to see snippets of each of the nine plays. Each piece runs about five minutes. It can make for a sort of disjointed evening, I'm told, but that's what they've done historically. And I'm the glue that holds it all together. With any luck, yes, Leah said with a grin. Your job is to welcome the audience, maybe do some tricks between acts, and introduce each play segment. Did you get the script I emailed over? He held up a stapled and slightly wrinkled script. It all seems pretty straightforward, he said. I've made some notes on some possible opening effects, some interstitial stuff that sort of ties into each play segment, and then a nice finale. It sounds like you've done more work on this than I have, Leah said with a laugh. She listened at the door for a second. The sound of muffled voices within could be heard. Let me just see how far they are on the tech rehearsal, and then we'll get you in and walk through your segments. No problem, Eli said. Take your time. I'm in no hurry. Leah pushed through the first and then the second set of double doors and entered the auditorium. She instinctively glanced over to her left at the empty seat in the back row where Jeremy McCormick had been sitting on opening night. There was no crime scene tape or any other indication of the violence which had occurred in that chair, which was identical to all of the other chairs around it. Further down that same row, she could see where Devin had been seated. The odd director had been in close proximity to Jeremy, but clearly not close enough to commit the crime. Leah glanced to her right at the identical row of seats on that side of the theater. She'd noticed there had been just as many comps on that side as well when she reviewed the computer schematic. But the comp seat Jeremy had chosen, or been given, had turned out to be deadly for its occupant. The same questions from days before still irked her. Who had given that comp to Jeremy McCormick? And could that be a clue to who had killed him? We'll just go through your cues in order, Leah said as she led the MC down the theater's main aisle. No need for you to be here for the cue to cue for all nine of the scenes. Sounds good, he said as he followed her up the stairs, which led to the stage. Let me give you a quick geography lesson, Leah continued. You'll make your entrance from over there in the right wing. And how do I get to the right wing in the first place? Eli asked. Good question. There are stairs leading up to that side of the stage from the basement and a corridor that runs under us to the green room, she explained, tracing the journey with her finger from the entrance wing across the stage and toward the left wing. Good to know, he said. She picked up a portable headset from the coffee table in front of the couch and pulled it on. She flipped a switch on a small black box as she attached it to her belt. Kanisha, we're ready for the opening cue, Leah said into the headset. She nodded as she listened for a moment, then turned to Eli. They're still writing a couple of light cues up in the booth, she said with a wave toward the back of the house. On the back wall, about a half story up, they could see a set of small windows. A silhouetted figure waved back. The two then stood awkwardly on the stage, waiting for the lighting cue to get written. 
The MC glanced around at the set and then turned to Leah. It must have been weird to be on set pretending to kill someone and then have a real murder happen just a few feet away. Leah nodded. Weird doesn't begin to cover it. Alex told me all about it, he continued. Where everyone was when it happened. All the relationships, the histories. It's like a puzzle. That it is. I like puzzles, he said, and then turned to her. Can I ask a technical question? I mean, a technical acting question? Sure thing. So you're playing blind, but you can still see, right? I mean, from out in the house, we could tell your eyes were open, but you also seemed completely blind. Leah laughed. I can still see, sort of, but I'm trying very hard to not focus on anything. It takes a lot of concentration. Let me show you what I mean. She sat on the couch to demonstrate. Right now, with my eyes unfocused, I can vaguely see the chairs out in the audience, even though there's very little light out there. She turned her head. I can kind of see you standing there, and if I look over here, I can see into the wings. It's much easier if you're wearing sunglasses. Then you don't have to do as much work. Or if it's actually pitch dark. So that blackout scene probably comes as something of a relief, I guess. It does, a bit, although it presents its own challenges. Before she could say anything more on the topic, Kanisha's voice was in her ear. Leah listened for a second, then turned back to the MC. Kanisha's ready to run the opening, she said as she stood. Why don't you take your place off stage? He nodded and headed toward the right wing. Leah stepped off stage in the other direction. She spoke into her headset. Cue the opening. Suddenly, a loud drum roll blasted out of the speakers as moving lights began to ballyhoo the stage. A moment later, a pre-recorded announcer's voice echoed throughout the empty theater. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 65th Annual Como Lake Players Preview Gala! Lively music replaced the drum roll, but the lights kept sweeping the stage as the announcer introduced the evening's host. As soon as she heard the introduction, Leah realized they'd have to re-record it. It was welcoming the MC, but the wrong one. Instead of Eli, the booming voice was welcoming the jerk who had quit for a paying gig. Leah yelled to Eli across the stage, Don't worry, we'll be re-recording that. He nodded as he stepped out onto the stage. The ballyhoo receded and the lights came up full. He got as far as, Good evening, in his script, and then turned to Leah. A quick technical question? That's why we call it a technical rehearsal, Leah said as she rejoined him center stage. Are those steps going to be here on show night? He gestured toward the temporary stair unit they had just walked up to get on stage. If they are, I can bring people on stage for some tricks. If not, then I can rejigger the act so that no one needs to come up here. Let me check. Leah quickly relayed the question into her headset. She nodded as she listened and then turned to the MC. Kanisha said we'll have a sturdier stair unit in place, but it will be stage left. That is, on our left, as we face the audience, she continued. Oh, wait, sorry, you probably knew that already, didn't you? I mean, you're a professional, she said, quickly turning apologetic. He nodded and smiled. Not to worry, years of corporate shows with executives who never learned the difference between stage left and stage right have reinforced the vital need for that refresher course. He looked over at where the steps would be during the show. I won't bring anyone up for this first segment. I'll just do something quick to establish my character. But when I do bring someone on stage, how tough is it to turn up the house lights a bit so they can see where they're going? 
Before Leah could reply, the house lights quickly popped on in response. Apparently it's no problem at all, she said. Kanisha is very good. Something in her ear interrupted her, and she listened quietly for a moment. She wants a minute to write a quick house light cue, to have as a go-to for during the show. Sure thing, he said. He flipped absently through his script pages. Leah waited patiently, her gaze drifting over to the stair unit. Something about his question had triggered a thought. Was it about Jeremy McCormick? It felt like it might have been, but it had disappeared as quickly as it had arrived. Kanisha's voice in her headset brought Leah back to reality. She turned to Eli. We're going dark for a moment while she finesses this cue. Before he could respond, the lights snapped off, plunging the stage and the entire room into darkness. This is as dark as the inside of a nun, as my uncle likes to say, Eli said. Leah laughed. He sounds like a hoot. You have no idea. Leah glanced around, realizing this must be the same cue for the fight scene, complete darkness. She glanced to her left and was surprised by what she saw. Or actually, what she didn't see. A moment later, the stage was once again flooded with light, and a light went off in her brain as well. I know how it happened, Leah said quietly. At least I'm pretty sure I know how it happened. Eli looked like he had a comment as well, but Leah already had her cell phone out. She was dialing a number she had strangely come to know by heart. Chapter 8 Thanks for coming, everyone. This short welcome announcement was given in the flat, even voice of Detective Dietz as the invitees stood awkwardly near the stage. Although not a commanding figure, his years of experience somehow made him quickly the center of attention in a situation like this. And being a homicide detective also didn't hurt. Some new information about the case has come to our attention, he continued. And rather than bring you all in one at a time, I thought it might be more efficient to do this as a group. This invitation-only presentation had definitely been his idea. Once Leah had recounted her theory to him over the phone, he'd come to the theater and asked her to physically walk through the scenario. At the conclusion of the demonstration, he'd sat quietly for several moments in the seat where Jeremy McCormick had died. I think, given the lack of actual physical evidence, it would be more productive to bring the entire cast together for this, he finally said. The individual personalities and group dynamics might work to our advantage. And so, the cast had been given an early call time for their Friday night performance of Wait Until Dark, arriving well before any of the ushers or other volunteer staff were on hand. The only non-cast members present were Detective Dietz and Georgia's husband. He looked just as sullen as he had the night he'd made Georgia leave the bar. After a grunted introduction, Leah learned his name was Sean. We want to run a short reenactment in order to better illuminate what might have happened the night Jeremy McCormick was stabbed, Dietz continued. He turned to Leah, gesturing that the floor was now hers. Thank you, detective, she said. We have a theory about how and why Jeremy McCormick was murdered. To best explain our thinking, I'd like everyone to go to where you were when the crime occurred. She turned quickly to Omar, who had started to head toward the exit. Omar, we know you were downstairs in the green room. For the purposes of this demonstration, why don't you just sit on the edge of the stage? He nodded in agreement while the rest of the cast moved up onto the set. I'm not really sure why I'm here, Sean said. He and Georgia had come in together, but as soon as she headed toward her spot in the wings, he immediately looked awkward and unhappy. 
although, to be fair, he hadn't looked all that excited before that. Sean, you are here as a representative member of the audience, Leah explained. Why don't you just take the seat you had that night, if you remember where it was? He nodded and crossed the aisle to his seat, grumbling something Leah couldn't quite hear. She turned to Detective Dietz. And why don't you take the hot seat, where Jeremy McCormick was sitting that night? The detective moved to the back row and settled into the seat. Leah turned to the stage to see how the actors were doing getting into position. Lloyd Williams was standing by the couch. Although normally pretty cocky, the sight of the detective and the announcement of this reenactment seemed to have taken some of the wind out of his sails. Alex was standing in front of the couch, looking even more uncomfortable than Lloyd, if that was possible. He hadn't said anything to Leah when he'd arrived, and that fact alone spoke volumes. Lloyd Williams lay down on the stage, taking the position his character falls into after being murdered. Leah could see his feet sticking out from behind the couch. Alex followed suit, bending down and gingerly tipping the coffee table over so it would be consistent with that moment in the play. Georgia and Tom Drake had disappeared into the wings, although Leah could see Georgia peeking out from around the curtain. For the purposes of this demonstration, Leah said loudly so they could hear her from the back of the house, why don't Georgia and Tom step on stage just a bit so you can see what's going on? They both stepped forward without enthusiasm. Kanisha, can you hear me? Leah said as she turned toward the back wall of the theater. She could see just a trickle of light coming from the windows of the technical booth high up on the back wall. Loud and clear, came her muffled voice. Great, let's go to lighting cue number one. Kanisha must have been poised and ready for this instruction, for a moment later the lighting in the room changed dramatically. The stage lights went on full while the house lights dimmed to about half their normal intensity. It wasn't as dark as it was during the show, but there was just enough light so Leah could see what was going on in the house. Okay, for our purposes, let's pretend this lighting represents how things looked before the blackout. And we also have a modified blackout look, Leah explained. A second later, the white lights on stage went out, leaving only a spooky blue glow covering the stage. For our demonstration, this represents the blackout look she said as she turned toward the auditorium's entrance doors. Detective Dietz gave her the slightest of nods from his seat, while on the other side of the aisle, George's husband glared at her. The reflected blue light from the stage gave his already sunken eyes a menacing tinge. As Leah reached the door, she turned and addressed the cast on stage. Once the blackout occurred, the clock was ticking for our killer. They had to leave their current position, make their way to the lobby, and grab the knife which lay next to the opening night cake. Leah dramatically pulled a butter knife from her pocket. She'd picked it up earlier in the theater's small kitchenette. Then, as quietly as possible, the killer had to move through first the outer door to the auditorium, wait for that door to close completely, and then move through the inner door, ensuring that no light leaks would give them away. Leah stepped out of the auditorium for what she hoped was a dramatic moment, and then re-entered through the second door. She stood for a moment at the top of the center aisle. Time is running out, and I have to be quick, Leah continued. It's dark, but I know where my victim is sitting. On the left, four seats in. Because that's the comp seat Jeremy McCormick was given. Leah's story was suddenly interrupted. It was me, came a voice out of the semi-darkness. I did it. 
Leah looked toward the sound and Detective Dietz leaned forward. Alex had gotten up and moved to the edge of the stage. I'm the one who gave Jeremy McCormick the comp. Okay, Detective Dietz said slowly. I'm the reason he's dead. Leah and the detective exchanged a quick look. Why did you give him the comp? Dietz said, still keeping his voice calm and even. If you'd asked me at the time, I would have said it was because I knew he was broke and wanted to help him out, Alex said, the words spilling out quickly. And what was the real reason? Alex looked around at the other actors on and near the stage and then out into the house where Leah and Dietz were. I wanted to rub his nose in the fact that I was in a great show and he didn't get to be a part of it, which was something he did to me every chance he got. It was petty, I know, and childish, but there it is. I'm not proud of it. But you didn't make the reservation, right? You just gave him the comp, Leah said. She had not expected this revelation, particularly in the middle of her recreation of the crime. This was not in the plan. You didn't know where he'd be sitting. Alex nodded along as she spoke. No, he picked his own seat. But it's my fault he was here in the first place. Dietz looked up at Leah and then turned back to the actor on stage. Thank you for telling us that. There had been some question as to how Mr. McCormick had received his comp ticket. Now that question has been answered. Let's get back to the crime itself. Dietz gestured for Leah to continue. It took Leah a moment to remember where she was in the narrative. I've entered the auditorium and am standing by the back row. Feeling for the seats, I ease my way down along the back wall until I count the fourth seat. I stab the victim repeatedly in the back at the very moment that everyone in the audience is jumping at Rote's back from the dead attack. The audience's screams cover up any sounds the victim might have made. Leah stood behind the chair in which Detective Dietz was seated and mimed a few quick but violent knife strokes. Assured my work is complete, I leave the knife in his back. I feel my way to the entrance door, slip through it, waiting until it is completely closed, and then I move back into the lobby. Mission accomplished. Leah looked down the long aisle toward the cast assembled on stage. They stared back at her for a long moment. That's nice and all, Omar finally said from his position on the stairs, but how is that new? I mean, isn't that what happened? It is what happened, Leah said, but I don't think that's what was supposed to happen. She moved back to her position directly in front of the closed doors. I think the direction our killer received was this. The victims on the left, the fourth seat in. From her position in front of the doors, Leah turned slightly to her left and indicated Detective Dietz, who sat four seats in from the aisle. The problem, as it turns out, was that the person offering that plan meant stage left, Leah continued, which from this new perspective facing the stage is actually on my right. So in reality, the killer should have turned right, counted four seats, and stabbed that person. She matched her actions to her words and found herself on the opposite side of the back row, the person sitting in the seat in front of her was Georgia's husband, Sean. It was simple, really, Leah continued. People get this mixed up all the time. The difference between audience left and stage left, especially people who are new to the theater. This last statement had its intended effect. 
Tom Drake pushed himself away from Georgia, pointing a shaking finger at her as he stumbled toward center stage. It was all her idea, he yelped. She planned it. She made me do it. What are you saying? Georgia screamed back. I had no idea you were planning such a thing. I love my husband. She turned toward Detective Dietz, who had crossed the aisle to stand next to Leah. Don't listen to anything he says. He's lying. I swear he's lying. She set the whole thing up, Tom Drake continued. It looked like he was hyperventilating. She pointed her husband out from the backstage. There he is, she said. On the left, fourth seat. I got through the doors and I did what she said. Fourth seat on the left. You're an idiot, Georgia shot back, and then she leapt toward him. Two uniformed cops appeared suddenly from the other wing and stepped between the couple, pulling them apart and quickly snapping handcuffs on the pair. Well, we can sort all that out downtown, Dietz said slowly. He sauntered down the aisle and then turned back to Leah. I'm afraid you're going to be a couple actors short this weekend. That's okay, she said. It's kind of a badge of honor to close a show early when it's selling out. Plus, that will allow us to really put our focus on the gala, making it a really terrific show, and raising some money as well, of course. I hope you can make it. My wife has already bought tickets. Leah couldn't tell from his tone if Dietz felt this was a good thing or not. Leah watched as the two cops escorted Georgia and Tom up the center aisle. Georgia's husband simply glared at her as she was marched past. The murderous couple were still trading barbs after they'd disappeared through the double doors, their voices echoing out in the lobby. After several moments, all was quiet. How did you know she was having an affair with Tom? This came from Alex. He and Lloyd had stepped to the edge of the stage to watch the couple's exit. Well, the rumor mill. You mean Gloria? Alex interjected. Yes, Gloria. And a few others suggested Georgia always hooked up with someone in the cast. I knew you two guys were too smart to fall for that, she said, indicating Alex and Lloyd. Or had been down that road before and weren't likely to take that trip again, Alex added with a nod toward Lloyd. And I don't ride her bus, so I was safe, Omar offered. Exactly. So that just left Tom Drake or Devin. While Georgia clearly didn't respect Devin, she was super mean to Tom Drake. And the only other person she was that mean to was her husband. To be fair, she was a little meaner to her husband, Alex suggested. What with the murder plot and all? True enough, Leah agreed. But she treated Tom the same way she treated her husband. You mean badly, Alex said. Exactly, which suggested to me that, although they were hiding it, they were involved. I imagine once she hatched her plan with Tom Drake, they went to great lengths to cover any hint they were involved. I actually think they knew each other from outside the theater. Doing the show together was just part of her larger plan. If there was no evidence of involvement between them, she probably felt it could create a stronger alibi for them during the murder, Lloyd said. She knew I could see them in the wings before the blackout, Leah said, and that I'd assume Tom was still there once everything went dark. If nothing else, I think this points out the dangers of show romances, Omar offered from his position on the stairs. Leah and Alex exchanged a quick look and just as quickly looked away. I make it a point to never get involved with a cast member of any show that I'm in, Alex said solemnly. I've had that same rule for years. Leah agreed. 
They slowly turned and looked at each other. However, this show is clearly closed, Alex said. Without question, Leah agreed. It's done. There was a long moment of silence between them, which was broken by Omar. Oh, for God's sake, just ask her out, Omar snapped. It's killing us, Lloyd agreed. I was just about to, Alex said. He turned toward her. Leah? She cut him off before he could finish. Yes. Well, that was fun. And I'm right. She is an amazing narrator. Good for you. Good for all of us. I like how she solved the mystery using a a couple of different clues. And I also like how Eli was hardly in that version at all. Well, you know, if two people tell the same story, they're each going to make themselves more prominent, aren't they? Indeed. For example, when I tell people about this podcast, your name hardly comes up at all. So uh, this is it, isn't it? This is really the end of season three. No more surprises. Am I right? You are correct. It is the end of season three, uh, but we have plenty of surprises in store for season four. For starters, instead of 12 episodes like season three, we're going to be back to our 24 jam-packed episode schedule. I can hardly wait. Hey, seriously, folks, no fooling. You got a lot of choices when it comes to entertainment. You got a billion choices when it comes to podcasts. If you're listening to ours, I'm grateful to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in season four. On the other side. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.